0: Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related. Brought to you by the Panel Jumper and Comic Extension. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is Nicole Lamb. Hello. Chris Casso. Hello. And of course, Mr. Cole Hornaday.
1: Hi. How's everybody this cold evening? Cold. Yeah. Chilly. We're um, uh, Nicole. I'm. please out. What are you wearing? I'm scarfed. You wearing your woolly <laughs> scarf, or is it is it a uh, vegetable fiber scarf?
2: I don't know. It's free. It was a free scarf.
1: Free scarf. And now it is on
2: my body. <laughs> yes. Keeping my neck okay. warm.
1: Because yes, it is. It is and rather chilly out there. You're, some sort of you're like well that. ventilated with under your. He's hot blooded, yeah. Yes. My, and ben right?
0: I'm wearing a fleece.
1: Yeah.
2: Thanks so. to uh, thanks for coming to our fashion podcast <laughs> again. guys. really good.
1: So Ben and I are fleecy
0: friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except mine doesn't. Mine doesn't have any logos on it. Yeah, mine's got my alma
3: mater on it. Yeah.
0: Anyway. So, said you shill? Sorry. Hey, so this is coming at you on uh, December twenty fourth, twenty eighteen, and this is going to be the first, uh, the first ever Best of Book Report because it is a holiday week. We're all taking the week off here, the uh, perfect Bound HQ. So let's uh, listen to a few of the uh, of our favorite book reports, shall we? Thank you for being with us, and we'll see you with a fresh episode next week with our end of the year favorites. And Cole Hardate, let's start with you,
1: sir. What do you well, want to tell us about? Um, I didn't read a lot of comic books uh, this last go-around. I actually read some books because I need to get caught up on some books. And one book that has been sitting on my shelf waiting to be read is um, Neil Gaiman's, uh, 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 what do I want to say, um, deep dive into Norse mythology in his book, Norse Mythology, that was published this last year. Um, I am, it's no secret that I am a huge Neil Gaiman fan. And um, as I was talking with the, with the gang before we started recording... Um, you know, he didn't write this book for money. He wrote this book because he could, because it was fun. He went all the way to the rivets and studying North mythology, but he just sort of teased out um, the stories he felt were most significant or those that he wanted to share. It's a, it's a really quick read at about 281 pages, um, and it's also got a glossary. Uh, some of it is just straight narrative, other times he does his, um, he, he, he goes into um, you know a dialogue, a back and forth. Forth. I learned lots of things about the, the Norse gods that I didn't know um, because, you know, where do I get my grasp of North mis- Norse mythology but from Marvel Comics and Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Larry Lieber, who de- actually doesn't get a lot of credit for contributing those stories back in the day, but Larry Lieber was um, was that Lee's um, uh, brother-in-law or I'm blood brother? Sure. Yeah, because Stan uh, Lee is not Stan Lee's real name, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, yeah. so Larry actually, and he does get credit in Thor Ragnarok, and I was like, "Oh, who's that? Oh, that's right." <laughs> um, anyway, so there's like, uh, so I learned some cool things, like you know, Loki is in 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 the original mythology is not Thor's brother, but Odin's brother, mm. um, and that Thor had uh, was married to Sif, and they had several children, and that's not how it played out in the Marvel universe. Just these kind of, I mean, it becomes trivia after a certain point, um, but. Uh, you know, and these are not noble characters, and, and Thor is depicted as probably the biggest lunkhead of the lot. Um, there's a, a point where, um, uh, let's see, uh, someone has stolen um, uh, the hammer of, of Thrym, the lord of... Uh, or, or, no, someone has stolen Thor's hammer, and it's been stolen by Thrym, lord of the ogres. Uh, and Loki says, I persuaded him to return it to you, but he demands a price. Fair enough, said Thor. What's the price? Freya's hand in marriage. He just wants her hand? Boom. Uh, and that's just so Neil Gaiman. But it's like, is that part of the mythology? Did, did did people in in you know Sweden and Norway sit around the fire and contrive that little cute bit of dialogue? No. That's Neil Gaiman. And that's why I love Neil Gaiman. I highly recommend this book. It's a lot of fun. Um, and frankly, it's over too soon. And I would love it if he did this kind of deep dive into more uh, mythological pantheons like you know the Hindu gods or even the Greek or the Romans because I know he would uh, make it rediscovering it for myself fun, but also for younger readers would make learning what this mythology is all about and how it influences so much of our literature, our storytelling and our comic books today.
0: I probably would have paid more attention in my uh, Norse mythology classes in college if the text was Neil Gaiman. Absolutely, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. All right. Absolutely. Norse mythology, thank you, mm-hmm. Cole Hornaday. Nicole, what do you got?
2: The T, the Tea Dragon Society. <laughs> I messed that up. Um, so Chris, a while ago, he um, did a review on Princess Princess by Katie O'Neill, and this is her second book. So the Tea Dragon Society is an all-age story and it focuses on this young girl who is a blacksmith apprentice, and one time when she's in like the downtown area of her village, she finds this tiny little green dragon that somebody is like terrorizing, and she gets the person away from the dragon and tries to find out where the dragon is. You know who who has this dragon, and comes across this um, this uh, person who brings her to a home where there's another dragon person, like a. He looks kind of dragony. Um, I think he's gender fluid um, because there are some aspects where the gender seems to switch around, but it's not really explicit. But um, uh, she finds out that there are these tea dragons and they're, they're little miniature dragons and they all come in different, you know sizes and shapes, and they have little leaves that grow off of their head. And they're kind of like, Like, trying to grow an orchid. Like, you could maybe try to grow an orchid, but it might never bloom again. But if you're a master at orchids, you will get it to bloom every time. And with tea dragons, there used to be a society where each person had a dragon that they tended to and cared for. Um, And uh, it's a very fine art. And over the years, some of the people of the society have passed away. And uh, there's some dragons that don't have homes. So the little girl becomes very interested in it. She's not as interested in blacksmithing because at at, at that time, she doesn't see like a use for blacksmithing. I guess it's not useful in this world or something. It's just more like an art, I guess, like tea. Uh, And uh, she meets another girl who's very, very shy, who has a little chamomile tea dragon. And uh, they form a... Bit of a friendship, and uh, it's just a very sweet tale. It's very like character driven. You get to know a little bit more about um, the dragon uh, person, who's kind of like the teacher, like sensei, like master, sort of. Um, and they have a partner who is wheelchair bound, who used to be a big tough warrior guy, and they would go on adventures together, um, but uh, he got into a bad accident and is now wheelchair-bound, but he's got a cute little dragon that is um, like Roybos, if that's how you say it, and he's a little scrappy dragon. He's my <laughs> favorite. Um, so anyway, it's a very sweet tale. I won't tell you all of it, because uh, I want you to read it, um, but there's a great thing in the back where it's um, extracts from the T Dragon Handbook, and it tells you all about tea dragons and um, you know, the societies and tea dragon leaves and all that. So it's kind of like this handbook of tea dragons and it's all made up and it's super cute. (laughs) And there's even a little profile bit in the back of each little dragon and uh, what sort of like things that they like and what how you brew the tea and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's very cute, very sweet. If you're just looking for a heartwarming tale that also has really beautiful art and some fun elements to it, I highly recommend the tea dragon society and also Katie O'Neill will be coming out with some other magical book later this year. So we'll probably also review that when that comes out, (laughs) whatever it will be Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we like the Katie (laughs) O'Neill.
1: All right, cool. Thank you, Nicole. Cole Hornaday, what do you got? Well, um, I, I need to talk about, um, the final installment of, uh, uh, Steve Niles and Bernie Wrightson's uh, Frankenstein Alive, Alive. And this is going to be really hard for me to talk about. Um, uh, as many of you know, uh, Bernie Wrightson died last year uh, after uh, struggling with a the- uh, brain tumor. This uh, this book. This is the fourth installment, the final issue of a series that started from IDW in 2012. Mm, that yeah. sounds about that 2014. Sounds right. It's been four or six years since it started. And Twelve or thirteen sounds right. To yeah, you. and um, and this truly whether it was intentional or not, was was going to be uh, Bernie Wrightson's Magnum Opus. Um, you know, he's drawn a lot of work since the horror comics he did in the 60s and 70s. Um, he's done superhero stuff. He's done Spider-Man. He's done Hulk things. He's done Batman things. He, you know, his own character, Captain Stern. Um, but it just never had the inspiration that a grim and gritty EC-style horror comic would bring for him, and the detail that he put into uh, the first four issues of Frankenstein Alive Alive was phenomenal. If you've ever had the opportunity to read the, um, the adaptation that he did in the 70s of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm-hmm. um, the detail in it is mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling, and he was putting that kind of detail into this book. Oh, and Niles was telling a kind of interesting story as well because it was—it's a direct sequel to the Shelley story. of mm-hmm. What has become of the monster, and still trying to find his way through the world. So, um, uh, I frankly was surprised that they managed to put this together for this fourth issue together for release upon um, Bernie's death, um, and apparently, and he had actually handpicked. Um, He'd actually handpicked Kelly Jones to uh, complete the story, so uh, to complete the the illustrations. So uh, Bernie drew page 1, 2, 8, 10, and 11 and the cover, and then Kelly Jones drew 3 to 7, 9, 12 to 19. Um, and it's very obvious who drew what, and, and that's okay, but... Of all the comic book illustrators in the universe who um, clearly borrowed from or were inspired by Bernie Wrightson, it's got to be Kelly Jones. And he's done his best in his own right to create his own style. But every time you look at even his contemporary work, you go, hmm, Bernie. And that's not a bad thing. But what was hard about reading this book is that... It, the work that the pages that that Kelly Jones did look really rushed, and and I know that they were trying to be mindful of not detracting from um, what was there uh, of, of of Wrightson's work, but there are some pages that that are um, I hesitate to say almost amateurish looking and really frustrating to look at, and I just I I, I really wish that Jones would just have gone for it and done his level of detail, his level of work, because you go from a page that is Bernie, uh, that has the emotional impact that Bernie was always capable of, and then it's, it's, it's a paler impact when we look at Jones' pages. And, it, and it, was just, it just made me kind of sad because I wish that he, Jones had not pulled himself back and just sort of celebrated that which Bernie had always inspired him to do. See, Jones in the past
3: two to three years has um, over-Jonesed himself if that makes sense. Sure. He's gone too far over the edge of stylizing of course himself. So I saw this as him muting that, mm-hmm. and I thought that was the only way it would be acceptable for this project.
1: Okay, fair um, enough. But I do feel it was rushed, because if you look at some of the pages, you can actually see the blue lines in it.
3: Hmm.
1: Um, hmm. Uh, and that, to me, is like incomplete work. Um, uh, you can see the blue pencils. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm... What do I know? Uh, it's... Was there a reason
0: for them to get this title out at
1: a certain date? That was a good question. That was a question I had too. Um, you know, surely they want to compile it in, um, you know, a, a, a trade or hardbound edition. Probably have lots of extras and and sketches, and you know, make it into a really cool package. Um, I just was, you know, maybe it's inevitable that you would be disappointed by something like this. But honestly, I felt like I was watching um, Game of Death. <laughs> With Bruce Lee, when they just took the good, they took the surviving moments uh, of this incomplete Bruce Lee film and they cobbled it together and they put it into another film in order to make a package of it. Um, And I don't mean to insult uh, um, Mr. Jones, but um, yeah, it's, uh, I, 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 I have, I feel very strongly that he could have done a better tribute to the man who inspired him.
3: A lot of pressure.
1: Absolutely, and those I can't are, yeah, knock for that. Yeah, those are big shoes that. to fill. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I can't knock him for that. But you know, at the same time, guys, he's been doing it for his whole career. <laughs> he's
3: All been right. doing it his whole career. Anyway, <laughs> cool. it's,
1: it is worth picking up. Um, if you've not ever read any of the earlier issues, you are in for an astounding treat. And yeah, I'm grateful that they completed the series. Um, and I'm sad that we've lost Bernie Wrightson because it was a tremendous loss. And maybe this is how I'm processing my grief. It does have a beautiful cover. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Chris Cassell, what do you got for us?
3: I read the first issue of the new Aliens miniseries from Dark Horse. It's called Aliens Dust to Dust, and it is written and drawn by Gabriel Hardman. Um, I like a lot of his work. He does The Invisible Republic for Image. He just did... uh, Green Lantern Earth One hardcover, um, and it's basically the uh, the breakout of an alien infestation on a populated planet. So it's a uh don't get to see that too often you get to see it usually on space stations um and so it's about all that general chaos and it's following this little boy and his mom and like the moment he wakes up to like a gunshot outside he sees that there's like one of the face huggers on his mom mm-hmm. and it just falls off and they don't know what that did so they're like let's just keep going and you're like oh okay <laughs> um so it's just bad things continually happening uh, happening i just really really like gabriel hardman um i like his style and uh I also love that the cover reminds me of the Three Wolves Howling at the Moon t shirts. Yeah. Um, oh. I wouldn't have thought of that if
0: he hadn't said anything, but yeah. yeah.
3: And also, <laughs> it, it, he signed it 2017. So, in my headcanon, he's like, I drew some aliens and shared it. And they were like, you want to just draw the rest of it and
1: make a full story? And he's like, okay. Is the little boy uh, the protagonist who follow through the story? Pretty much, yeah. Is it going to be a, a limited series? Or four issues. Yeah, four-issue yeah,
3: okay. four series. Um, and so it's just things getting from bad to worse, bad to worse. And you kind of, I'm not going to say it's it's predictable, but you know what's going down.
2: I mean, it's aliens, it's right? Aliens, things are going to be horrible. Exactly. You can kind of
3: you know Speculate. it doesn't yeah. talk about the why and the how you just don't care with an alien story anymore you just like just just nope, just, yeah. just, just break really through the chest and, yes. and acid yes got the acid let's go second mouth good to go let's go yeah it's, it's go. like it's like that batman origin story we
0: know the aliens <laughs> just tell us interesting stories i like the dark horse does number one of four is that yeah. a common thing
3: yeah generally so yeah. okay good yeah yeah. Now I just really want to see an aliens flashback that sees like a bunch of pearl pearl necklaces breaking, and it's just a pair. <laughs> like just just start getting the crossovers mixed up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Crime, Alley. Yeah, yeah. Crime, Alley. Yeah. Crime Alley. Yeah, Crime Alley. Alien Crime Alley. Well, we did Alien yeah. Batman, didn't we, or was it yes. Alien Superman? Uh, yeah. Both. Yeah. We've done Alien everything. We've done yeah. Alien me at some point. We don't yeah. even know it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. In another, in another multi dimension. Yeah. All right.
0: Um, Nicole, let's start with you.
2: Okay. Um, the latest obsession that I have had is uh, in the realm of romance comics, and I waited a long time for My Boyfriend is a Bear to come mm-hmm. out. It's by Pamela Ribbon and Cat Ferris, or Rib-on, rib anyway. Rebon. I know, <laughs> I'm always gonna be great at this. Okay, anyway, um, it focuses on this... Um, this young woman who, who is, has like a string of just like really terrible boyfriends and, she, and they break it all down and it's really hilarious. And one night she's out with her friends. Uh, she gets a little extra tipsy and comes home to find that there's a bear who, who followed her from a camping trip. And uh, she's like, "Ah, I'm drunk. Just come on in." And he plop- he plops down in front of the fridge and starts eating. And she's like, Nah, that sounds like a good idea." And so she starts eating. And then the bear just sort of hangs around and becomes her boyfriend. And he is best bear. Mm-hmm. And he there's even like a period where it shows you like his different communications, and like it's just a bunch of his head being like, "Grrr." Mm-hmm. Rar. Rar. Rar, 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 Click, 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 Yeah, it's like I get a better rar. understanding of the way he, com- he, he of his communication. It's like grar is hungry, frar is nervous, frar <laughs> is warning somebody's grumpy. Yeah, it's just like all that kind of stuff.
3: Coming in for a hug.
2: Coming, coming, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or something like that was coming in for a hug. Um, and, you know, he's, like, destroying furniture and stuff like that. But he's so he's good in so many other ways. Like, he's handy. He puts up shelves for the kitty cat. And the kitty cat and him have this, like, interesting relationship. Um, there's, like, even a cat versus bear problems with claws. Like, this one is bear. This one is cat. This one is bear. And, like, going back and forth to all the different destroyed things in her house. Um, but he's very considerate and very sweet and... Um, Like some of her friends don't really like understand the relationship and stuff like that. I mean, it's understandable. Mm. He's a literal bear, Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe best boyfriend. So it was something that had me laughing and crying. I think it was beautifully done. It was totally worth the wait. And so if you're looking for something sweet and endearing, think back to maybe um, the the um, great review that Chris did about my love story Kind of in, in like a sweet, endearing um, romance comic like that. Um, not quite where everyone is the best because it's mm-hmm. nothing can compare exactly to my love story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, but I highly highly recommend it. Um, hopefully we'll be able to get some more copies in the store. So if you want to snag one, it is recommended.
0: Cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Cole Hornaday, let's start with you. What okay. Do you got for us? Well, I um, I'm going to do a little bit of a preamble uh, because I. Uh, I read um, the new version of The Prisoner um, from Titan Comics by uh, Peter Milligan and art with art by um, uh, Colin Lormer and uh, colors by uh, Joanna Lafuente. Fuente. Um, I'm not really familiar with Titan Comics. Um, I don't think I've ever read any of their uh, uh, stories, but Chris pushed this one at me primarily probably because um, uh, he wanted me to be to, – to see that the, one of their alternate covers was uh, 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 an illustration by Jack Kirby. That was
3: the entire reason. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, which was back in the seventies, um, Jack Kirby and, um, uh, um, Oh, shoot. Kane. Um, Gil Kane. Oh. Uh, Jack Kirby and Gil Kane were going to do their own version of The Prisoner that never got off the ground. But apparently, they're releasing it in a, in a collected edition of fragments of it. Oh. Um, so, this is based on, or this is kind of a sequel to. Um, Uh, the Milligan book is a sequel to uh, the Patrick McGowan Prisoner series originally produced by uh, the BBC back uh, between uh, 1967 and 1968. Um, It was probably one of the most uh, bizarre psychedelic television series ever produced and um, had a pretty profound impact on television storytelling back in the day. Um, I sat and re-watched all the episodes about three or four years ago and was absolutely fascinated by them. Um, Now, my you, I tried to watch them when um, they were uh, they were running them on local public television when I was twelve, and you know I just really couldn't get my head around them. So there, uh, the premise of the original uh, Prisoner series is there is this apparently secret agent played by Patrick McGowan. Um, who is abducted, uh, who wants to quit whatever secret government agency he's working for and, um, you know, either retire or, you know, disappear, but they just can't let him. Um, clearly, he has information that, and they can't kill him because they need to extract the information from him. So, um, and you learn all of this in a wordless preamble to every episode with this uh, music playing underneath, and if you get the same visuals uh, telling you what happened to him and and how he gets led to and and wakes up in this mysterious island called uh, this mysterious island uh, in a place called the village and it's and, and you know as much as he does you never know his name he's after he arrives at the village he's referred to as number six and he's constantly at odds with number one or number two Two. You never know who number one is, but you do learn at the end of the series. I'm not going to spoil that for you because it's one of the most aggravating things ever created for television. (laughs) Number one
0: is inside all of us.
1: Ah, I've never seen it, so that's not a spoiler. uh, (laughs) Actually, you just ruined it. Are you serious? Seriously did. Yeah. Yeah! (laughs) <laughs> well, it, that. it gets twisty. It gets so twisty. <laughs> now you I, don't have to watch it. Jeez. Um, well, you know what? It's, it's not for everybody. And I'm going to get to talking about the comic book here. I'm sorry, Nicole. <laughs> I thought you picked up my comic book. Um, I'm going to get to the comic book, but I wanted to kind of give you an overview of the TV series because I do think it's worth watching. And I do think it has a timeless aspect to it, even though it was shot in the late 60s. It has its own style from the the way the, 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 the way it's acted to the costuming to everything because every episode is about number six trying to escape the island and every effort is this major major mind um, yeah. twist <laughs> i'm not going to use the <laughs> f word yeah, yeah. but it is every episode is just an absolute uh mind blast so in this new comic book that that milligan is writing um this exists in a world where um uh, we meet this government agent, and we learn his name. His name is actually um, Breen, and he's going rogue for some reason. And there's a bunch of like really cool and psychedelic spy stuff, but he's on the run. And I don't want to give him away too much of the plot because uh, uh, it, it does get into some very uh, lacar esque uh, spy intrigue. But in this world, he knows about the village, This village is actually, the village in this story is actually something that exists if you are a member of the government and you know that that is an option for you if you screw up or if you try to retire. And at the very end, after we go through all these these, uh, uh, different chases and fight scenes and and him trying to actually uh, steal secret government knowledge, he wakes up in the weird pinstripe suit that Patrick McGowan wore through all the original series and he's in the village. So um, I don't see a balloon. (laughs) <laughs> I don't see a weather balloon. Rover. Rover it was Rover, yeah. yeah. That was one of the, the creepy things about the island. This is when it gets really surreal um, in the village is that if you try to escape, a giant white weather balloon emerges out of the ocean and runs you down.
3: <laughs> there's, I a, mean, there's a scene from The Simpsons that uh, yeah. sudden,
1: suddenly everybody now understands. Right. Where Hans um, Molman gets it. And you hear this <laughs> roaring, screaming sound, a swirling, warring, screaming sound, and and this white weather balloon comes rolling down the beach, and and then you see, uh, you get a point of view shot from inside of, of the balloon. As, some, as It stretches across someone's face, and they disappear. So you assume that they get sucked up inside rover and taken to a bad place um, so this is series is going to run four? i think four issues yeah, yeah. all right um uh I- I, I enjoyed the first issue um, I just was kind of intrigued by the fact that we didn't start over from scratch in introducing the audience to uh, the village and what this stuff is and what the rules of the story are as that we um, we established that this exists in the universe and I think that's actually kind of problematic at the same time because one of the things that was creepy about the TV series is you just never knew if this was really happening to this guy or whether it was a psychedelic trip uh, it, was, it was some type of virtual reality of course that terminology didn't exist back in the late 60s um, but uh, you were you were discovering things about this world and um, and wrestling with the same uh, imageries Of of fascism and surveillance and and intrigue that he was. So I'm curious of where they're going to go with this series um, since we already know the rules of the story. Mm. Um, And I'm not the biggest Peter Milligan fan. I don't think I dislike him as much as Chris does. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, I think given the right stories, he can be a good storyteller. And I'm going to stick with it rather than wait for the trade. I think I'll I'll read the individual issues. And um, if you like, I'll keep you posted. All right, the prisoner. Thank you, Cole. Speaking of The Simpsons,
0: I they did a whole prisoner satire episode, and uh, one of my favorite comebacks is in that episode. So Homer is number sixteen or, or <laughs> whatever number they gave him. Which I don't remember number six, and uh, the white bubble is chasing him down the beach, and it gets close to him, and he like reaches up and he pops it, <laughs> and then you cut to two scientists in like a control room watching it, and one scientist turns to the other and and he says why did you think a giant bubble is going to stop him? And and then the other scientist turns to him and she says, shut up, that's why. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was one of my favorite
0: comebacks. <laughs> All right. Chris Cassell, what do you got for us?
3: I read a manga. Surprise. <laughs> uh, it is, I'm going to butcher a whole bunch of words here. Otherworldly Izekiah Nobu is the name of the title, published by Udon, which is... Uh, it, Interesting. I don't get too much manga from Udon because they usually just do Street Fighter comics. Yep. Um, it is based on original story by Natsuya Semikawa and the manga is adapted by Virginia Nitohue, and character designed by Kuruhuri, K- Kururi, Kururi, Kururi. Um, I'm just going to read the summary real quick because it does it better than I can describe it. A Japanese-style pub called Nobu exists in the back alley of the fictional medieval European city of Aitarak. Its customers, a pair of slacker soldiers, a spoiled heiress, an uptight tax collector, and more. When a of the strange world sit down to enjoy some unfamiliar Japanese cuisine, their troubles simply melt away. So it's basically about a magical Japanese pub from the current modern world teleporting into a fantasy medieval German uh, medieval city. It's really odd. It's really random idea. Um, that's it. That's the plot. There's nothing nothing <laughs> happens. Each chapter is just people go to this restaurant and really enjoy this food. Um, it's pretty great because like the uh, there's the uptight tax collector who's kind of this, this horrible, uh, he's got a monocle and he's, Everybody hates him because he takes all the money, and uh, he wants to uh, get some special service there. And the the uh, chef, whose name is Chief, um, <laughs> is 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 out getting some some uh, supplies, and so the serving girl is. Uh, is the one that's uh, he's like oh yeah you know, make you make me uh, that pasta you know because um, or just noodles and uh, and she's gonna make basically just normal Italian pasta which he's never had in this time period and uh, so he eats it. And he basically, he literally has his mind blown. Like the panel turns into this cosmic scene where he's like, this is life, the universe, the answer to everything. And he's uh, being surrounded by uh, uh, angel cherubs. And he's like, this is the manifestation of agape, of uh, the God's love for humankind on so earth. It's like
1: a Ratatouille moment. Kinda, yeah,
3: yeah. exactly. So it's, it's very enchanting. And he's just like, I'm gonna go change my life and, and quit this job that everybody hates and go find my mama and papa in the countryside and so it's just like stuff like that it's just cute little stories <laughs> people
2: are giggling at him unbeknownst to him he has a big you he's know. got
3: a big ketchup smear all over his <laughs> face yeah. yeah. um so yeah it's just it's another cookbook it's just a fun cute little concept and it's uh 13 bucks good price i got a lot out of it cool so yes all right <laughs> thank you chris uh
0: nicole what do you got for us
2: So a book I've been looking very much forward to came out. It's called *Petite*, the Ogre Gods and it's the book one. Um, This is written by Hubert Ballard and um, I think art is by Bertrand (laughs) Gautignal.
3: We'll go with it. Super
2: good with it. It's (laughs) translated from French. Um, by Jeremy Malau, and it was published by Lion Forge. It's a beautiful hardcover. Um, it's all black and white, and it has um, little chapter breaks where there is bits of text where you get to know more about the history. Um, this almost went by my radar. I looked at it, but I didn't do much research, and then Chris pings me one night and says, did you notice this in previews? And I was like, hadn't really given it. Oh, my God, I need this. <laughs> um so it follows these um, these giants, you know, uh, like fiFI Fofum. Um <laughs> And they are royalty. They're you know presiding over whatever this land is. They're like the kingdom. And um, they're these sort of inbred, cannibalistic, Kind of monstrosities in their own way. You see them at first devouring humans as part of just their royal meal, like
3: corpses in corpses, and yeah. they're
2: fighting each other and and just being very scrappy, um, almost like you know wild animals are. Um, and this woman, uh, all of a sudden, uh, gives birth to a tiny child who is human size. She doesn't even know. She didn't even know she was pregnant. It's just all of a sudden the kid falls out of her in the uh. middle of this dinner. Yeah, it's pretty savage comic, um, but it's great. And (laughs) (laughs) um, she hides the the child in her mouth um, and um, takes the child to her aunt, I think.
3: Yeah, I think it's the aunt. I think
2: it's the aunt who has um, locked herself away in this room and says, like, please help me raise this child. Because the aunt um, is
3: a vegetarian.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, she does not eat humans. She's very different from the rest of the giants. And um, the page breaks, the, the chapter breaks, you get all these histories like you get the aunt's experience you get like the person who started this this family lineage
3: mm-hmm. um, the founder
2: the founder um, and uh, the, the general gist is that um, that he had a lot of relationships sexual relationships with human women and grew um, the family legacy that way and over time they just were with each other um, like brothers and sisters and cousins And things like that And they became inbred And so this child named Petit Becomes the potential um, Cleansing Of the DNA genetic legacy Because he could, um, he could Procreate with Human sized women um, And he even Falls in love with somebody And is trying to navigate through this world And everything Meanwhile the The mother is trying to keep him secret from the king because he'll be eaten, like, right away and destroyed. and Um, So it is this interesting story of legacy in the world of these awful giants. Um, And it does have this fairy tale quality to it, almost.
3: Very gothic fairy tale. Yeah,
2: gothic fairy tale, but it is quite savage. These people are very uh, down to the bare bones of their humanity.
3: (laughs) There's a scene I love where... um the mother still wants to make sure that he's going to be like a giant. Yeah. And so she brings him like a picnic basket and there's just corpse bits inside of yeah. it. And she just hands him like a leg and he just starts nomming on it. And yeah. she's like, there we go. It's tasty, isn't it? Yeah. And then the aunt's the one trying to be like, no, don't. That's like what animals do. Yes. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's all these conflicts of interest. So overall, they're trying to protect Petite because they know that their line is not going to last much longer if they continue their their. Practices the re- recreation, pra- recre-
1: Procre- procreation. Thank you. I knew there was
2: recreation <laughs> in there somewhere. They're procreation practices. Um, so this is book one. Hopefully, there will be many more. Uh-huh. I'm very excited for it. It is it is gorgeously done. Um, Lion Forge is does has actually been doing some really good collections, bringing in a lot of European stuff. It's twenty four ninety nine. I think it's a great deal. You get a lot out of it. I mean, reading. I generally am not a fan of like text with my comics, but it depends on the execution, and this was a great execution.
3: Well paced, balanced.
2: Very well paced, and I wanted to know. I wanted to. Oh, oh! I get to learn about this guy now. You know, it, it all lines up with the comic itself you know you get introduced these characters or something about them and
1: see i'm wondering if this is based on true story um because there is this folklore um it's i I think uh, aaron Mankey talks about it in lore the podcast where it's there's a 17th century uh band of uh, french cannibal raiders who mm-hmm. lived on the coastline in france who would consume their victims and then were eventually brought to justice um there was a is, scottish family it was as well. a scottish family thank you yes oh, yeah okay yeah there, there could foreign. have been two families yeah no no yeah. it was scottish okay. yeah, that would, um,
2: that's very different from this okay. though all right yeah but i could see where you'd see the parallels of like the cannibalism well you better <laughs> but it's got more of the you know the the stories that you hear of kings and how brutal they they really sure. were as people and you take it and you put it in this sort of fairy tale setting it's like it's not it's not that far off to think like they would dine on humans because they're just so brutal you know um but overall i just think it's great i I love it so much, and I hope other people will want to read it, We'll
3: too. be stocking tons of them here and at Corner. Please
2: buy them at Corner. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please, sir. <laughs> and
0: uh, Chris Casseau, let's start with you. What do you want to tell us about?
3: So I previously reviewed a... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles miniseries called Bebop and Rocksteady Destroy Everything, and it was magical, and I loved it. <laughs> uh, this is the sequel to that. It's Bebop and Rocksteady Hit the Road, and uh, it was a weekly series for five issues. It just finished, and um, it is such a thing of beauty, and I love <laughs> it because they are the perfect idiots and... Uh, I just don't know where they even begin they have a pet dinosaur for some reason and they meet all sorts of like random uh, uh weird characters but one of the best things is that uh they lose their mutation and they become humans and they get stuck being humans for a while and uh they're like well guess we just got to get some jobs and so you have a montage of them like losing like 10 jobs in a row and like one of them is like teaching uh kindergartners and he gets so bored that he turns it into a fight club for kindergartners and then another one is doing like house to house sales with uh, knives and you just get this like three panels of like his face darkening and then him murdering some murdering somebody with the knives and then like eating all the food at a restaurant or uh, farting during a yoga class and uh, then the plot continues after that Um, (laughs) the plot thickens and then one of my other just most favorite things is there's a part where they're flying a trans dimensional spaceship and they're lost and going across the world and they just they finally make it to New York and then they're just stuck in New York traffic and they forget that they're in a spaceship that can fly <laughs> and the entire time they've been singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall but they've never gone down from 99 <laughs> so the, uh, the creative team I should have started with that um, it's different artists every issue it is written by Ben Bates and Dustin Weaver um, script and most of the art throughout the series is Dustin Weaver and uh, they just have the perfect concept of what two murderous, horrible idiots that are lovable should be. <laughs> <laughs> and I find that to be perfection. <laughs> so uh, I highly recommend this. You don't need to really know anything else that happened because they they don't know anything that happened. And uh, if you just like stories that follow pairs of idiots, it's good to go. <laughs> cool.
0: Are the Bebop and Rock City stories going to be collected? Uh, the first one was this one will be Yeah. okay great Yep. neat well that is book important. that is our show but before we go I want to tell you that the Perfect Bound Podcast is brought to you by the Paddle Jumper see everything Cole Hornaday and I do at thepaddlejumper.com as well as Comic Extension here at 319 Northeast 45th Street in beautiful downtown Wallingford or 24 hours a day 7 days a week at comicstension.com subscribe to the show on iTunes or however you get your podcast at perfectboundpodcast.com and thank you for listening and we will see you next week